Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to episode four of Popcorn Junkie. On this week's episode, we review the unwarranted sequel movie, God's Not Dead 2, the unwanted black parody movie, Meet the Blacks, and the 2015 drone warfare thriller, Eye in the Sky. Let's get started. God bless you. Careful, or you might end up on trial. He's living on the inside, like a liar. God's not dead. If you've been listening to this podcast, you've kind of gotten the idea that I'm not a big fan of what I like to call Christ exploitation movies. These are movies that, like most exploitation movies, are made very cheaply and look terrible and are mainly used to exploit their audience. Black exploitation played to black audiences. Sex exploitation plays to people who like to see sex in their movies. Robert Rodriguez has been a proponent of mech exploitation, where a lot of it features Hispanic characters and caters to a Hispanic audience. And here we have Christ exploitation with God's Not Dead 2. I just want to say up front, God's Not Dead is one of the worst things I've ever seen put to film. Or rather, I guess, digital memory, depending on how it was made. It truly is just something awful. And if you want to hear more of my thoughts on the original, listen to episode two where I go into Christian cinema. I go on a whole rant about it, complete with censored out cursing. And this time around, instead of this really terrible anecdote about the Christian student teaching the philosophy professor that God exists, this time around we have a teacher put on trial by the ACLU for believing in God and telling that to a student. And it's supposed to be, you know, the righteous story of this Christian woman overcoming adversity from the evil atheist ACLU. If you live in the real world, like most of us, you'll know that the ACLU is one of the most important aspects of our modern legal system. The ACLU has been a part of defending civil liberties since its inception, which is the whole, it's the American Civil Liberties Union. It is to protect people's civil liberties, namely those of minorities and the oppressed, the actually oppressed, not the fake oppressed that a lot of really evangelical Christians like to think they are. Anyway, this time around we have Melissa Joan Hart, uh, the return of the pastor character and the Chinese character and the liberal blogger who has converted to Christianity and started dating the lead singer of the Newsboys so that they could continue bringing those hack jobs in to sing a concert at the end of the movie again because they needed to end the movie in a concert and sing the movie's theme song again. And uh, the only other addition this time around is one of the Duck Dynasty couple's daughters who plays a character who is raised in an atheist sort of progressive household where she turns to Christianity because her parents got over her brother's death too quickly. And because apparently her parents are working to make a living so that she can live in this really nice suburban neighborhood Instead of talking to a counselor, you know, somebody to help her through 
the depression of losing her brother, who we never get to see a relationship established. All we know is that she said that he's dead, and yet she is upset that she never got to know her brother. If you didn't really know him, how can you be sad that he died? I personally, this is just from my personal experience, I knew my grandmother for most of my life, but by the time that she died, she was not the same person I grew up knowing. And as much as I hate to say it, I was not as sad when she died as I was when my other grandparents died who hadn't gone through debilitating changes. For the record, she had dementia, and so the grandmother I knew by the end was not the grandmother I had known growing up. It was completely different. So... That was me knowing somebody. I can't imagine if somebody I didn't know died. If somebody in my family that I didn't really know, on have a real connection with, died, why would I be sad and then be upset at other people for not being sad? I don't know. I'm applying logic to a situation that never input logic into it. Uh, Anyway, point is, Teenage Duck Dynasty is sad about her brother dying, and she starts reading a Bible, and she asks Melissa Joan Hart, her history teacher, about Jesus, and Melissa Joan Hart quotes scripture at her. And apparently, that gets everybody upset, despite the fact that this is based in Arkansas, where I'm sure teachers down there quote scripture on a daily basis. She's... In this magical part of Arkansas, where every teacher around her is an atheist, and she's the only Christian. I don't know what mystical, magical, other-dimensional Arkansas that is. I can guarantee you, there ain't no place in Arkansas that has all atheists except for one Christian teacher. I guarantee you, most of them are at least raised Christian, if not practicing Christian. That's not the point. Point is, the ACLU charges her for offending the daughter's uh, civil liberties to not be preached to in a public setting because that's a real thing that actually happens, namely in the Deep South, namely in places like Arkansas and Georgia and Texas and Arizona, places where there's a heavy concentration of that evangelical Christian mindset. And... This isn't what usually happens. Usually what happens is legislatures will try to teach the Bible or theories inspired by evangelical mindsets in a public setting in place of things like science and history. And that's when the ACLU gets involved. And there are teachers, there are instances where teachers have assignments that require the use of a Bible for something that is not theological or philosophically based. There are even points where they try to get the Bible to be taught in school as literature. It's just that sort of thing that that's why the ACLU gets involved, not because one random thing. And besides the fact, any lawyer would look at this case and not press charges because there's nothing to press. A student asked a question, a teacher answered, nothing happened. And yet they want to make it look like that's what all these teachers are doing when that is completely not what's happening. The ACLU gets involved when it's institutionalized basis for religion in school. That's when the teachers get involved, not when students 
get involved with their faith. I grew up in early 2000s, late 90s in Richfield, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland, which is like in between Akron and Cleveland, pretty rural area. And students there went from either Bath Township or Richfield Village. And so it's fairly suburban and rural. You got They got that mix going there. And there was plenty of extracurricular activities involving people's faiths, mainly Christianity, because there were plenty of organizations where Christian students could apply their religion to something extracurricular. And the school was fine with that. Nobody raised any questions. Nobody had any problems with it. And we all moved along our merry way. There was no need to bring the ACLU in because it's an extracurricular thing that the students are running, not the school. If the school is not instituting these religious organizations, the students want to form them. And that's not what brings the ACLU in. The ACLU comes in when it's institutional, when it comes from the top down, not from the students up. I really need to stop applying logic to this movie because there is none in it. Point is, Melissa Joan Hart gets attacked by the evil atheist ACLU because she quoted scripture and they go through this whole rigmarole of a farce of a terribly written Law and Order episode where they try to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is real. And the ACLU lawyer, whose name is Cain, because you couldn't understand that he was evil, his name is Cain. Do you get it? Do you see? Do you see the level of writing we're dealing with in this movie? And Melissa Joan Hart's character, Grace Wesley. As in Grace, the Christian virtue, and Wesley, as in Wesleyan, as in the private branch of colleges that are out there. Indiana Wesleyan, Ohio Wesleyan. Wesleyan is a denomination of Christianity. Grace Wesley, do you see? Do you see what I'm dealing with? <clears throat> Sorry. Point is, this movie is terrible. It is the worst. And the longer it goes and the more it tries to attempt a legal drama, the crazier it gets. Bringing in actual Christian authors to promote their books that try to prove the historical accuracy of the Bible. Because that needed to happen. No, it's okay, atheists watching this movie. Actual atheists believe in Jesus Christ was a real guy. So that obviously means his divinity is proven. I don't know. I don't know why. The pastor quotes Albert Einstein, for God's sake. This movie doesn't make any sense. Ugh. Point is, this movie is terrible, and it's awful, and they still have the Chinese student and his father speaking separately Mandarin and Cantonese because they didn't realize the difference last time. It's been two years since the last movie and they still didn't realize there are two different dialects in Chinese. Ay, ay, ay. Nothing in this movie makes sense. And it's a complete farce and by the end of it, I was laughing like the Joker. By the end, I was laughing so hard at the awfulness of this movie 
because I because there was a point during the climax where the lawyer character, who looks like second-rate Josh Duhamel, gets in a nice business suit with black shiny shoes because apparently that was a whole thing that the lawyer from the ACLU is stuck up and likes black shiny shoes over brown leather shoes because I don't know why. The defense lawyer gets in and does his very best Tom Cruise impression from A Few Good Men to the point where he directly quotes the movie with either, I think we deserve answers, or it wasn't directly, I want the truth. It wasn't that iconic. They knew enough not to quote the line that everybody knows. It's the line right before it that they quote, and he gets all intense and up in her face, and because she cries on the stand, everybody gives her a pass, I guess, because that's how trials work, and that's how the law works, and this movie is madness. And, like, they tell the teenage daughter who started a whole protest, and apparently the protest with the atheists, where they were about even size, turns into the Million Man March in front of, I'm guessing, what is supposed to be a courthouse, but it looks more like the the state capitol in Little Rock. And it's, 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 it's mind-boggling. It's, it, it's, it's... I am at a loss for words. That's why I was just laughing at the absurdity of it all. And and get this. As soon as the trial's over, the little Duck Dynasty girl comes out and she screams to the entire million man march in front of the little rock capital steps that God's not dead because a local level trial ended in favor of the Christian, thus proves God's not dead. Atheist zero, God one. What? Oh, God. Uh, and this time around, they also ended with the call to action, text everybody you know that God isn't dead, and then here are actual cases, most of which were blown completely out of proportion and didn't have anything to do with Christianity, but we're going to list them anyway because Jeebus. Uh, and I don't want to insult you for being a believer. Or are you a Christian? Because apparently in this movie, there's a difference between being a believer and being a Christian. Because apparently all Christians are believers, but not all believers are Christian or something. They never explain because they don't explain the stupid things because it's gobbledygook. But I'm not trying to insult you for believing whatever it is you believe. I don't care. I just want good movies. That's why I go to the movies, to watch good movies. And this week, I didn't get that at all for the most part because of garbage like this. And I hate the fact that my money goes to support it because I have no means of watching these things for free. And they're utter, utter, utter garbage. Uh, so yes, God's not dead too, because apparently the terribly adapted movie of the stupid philosophically blah 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 blah, I don't even know anymore. Point is, don't support this movie.
Please don't support these people. They're insane. They make garbage. Please save your money. Pirate it. I don't actively tell people to pirate movies because I want you to support the artist. Don't support these people. Don't give them an inch. They're insane. They make garbage and they expect you to pay for their garbage because it's made so cheap that any people seeing it makes them a profit. Please, I beg of you, go watch good movies instead. May God have mercy on our souls. You're car block from Chicago, right? Yeah, and you're Caesar from the Planet of the Apes. Don't put that Ebola finger in my face. Whew, that last review was intense. What do we got this time? Are we sure Marlon Wayans isn't directing this? Because it really feels like Marlon Wayans had something to do with this. As it turns out, nope. It's all Snoop Dogg. Because Snoop Dogg puts his name on quality. Like Soul Plane. So, I'm not a fan of the Purge movies. I never really got into them because I thought the idea was stupid. I did see the first one. It wasn't that good. I don't get what the idea is because that obviously wouldn't work if you actually thought about it. But it's ripe for parody. It is perfect for actual parody. And instead, we get lowest common denominator, lowest hanging fruit garbage where it's supposed to tackle the idea of a black family moving from inner city Chicago to Beverly Hills, only it's, it's terrible. Like, I think white chicks tackled racism better than this movie. That's what we're dealing with here, people. This is the levels we're talking about. This is below white chicks and quite possibly Soul Plane. I haven't seen Soul Plane in its entirety to say but we are lower than that. We are definitely the bottom of the barrel here. The fact that this got a theatrical release is insane because this should go direct to Redbox, honestly. Go direct to Redbox, go direct to Netflix, Amazon, Instant Prime, doesn't matter. You should not see this in theaters because this is, this is garbage. Like, the jokes aren't funny. Most of them aren't even jokes. It's screaming the N-word round and half-assed attempts at commentary on race relations or something because I don't know and it's like and yet most of the people trying to kill the guy in the movie came from Chicago to kill him and they're all hood stereotypes and it's it's really really bad and nobody even like we've got guys like Mike Epps and Mike Tyson shows up for a, a quick bit. And Charlie Murphy's in it. Charlie Murphy! Because that joke's not dead yet. And that reference was way, way better than anything else in this movie. If you haven't understood what I'm trying to say is this is a Purge parody with a black cast. And we've got Mike Epps, some Hispanic model I've never heard of. A uh, 30-year-old black woman playing a teenage girl and a little black boy who dresses as a vampire. But only for part of the movie. And his name is Carl Jr. So there's plenty of references to Carl's Jr. And I'm guessing that was on purpose because they thought that counted as a joke. 
that wouldn't work for Family Guy. <sighs> I'm willing to admit this right now. Meet the Blacks is technically worse than God's Not Dead 2. Because for one thing, God's Not Dead 2 was way funnier. Like, think of The Room. Then think of somebody making a Christian legal drama, but it's about the same quality as The Room. And you've got God's Not Dead 2, in a nutshell. Only not as good as The Room. Like, The Room is hilarious. The Room is a laugh riot. God's Not Dead 2 is not as funny. The jokes don't hit as hard in God's Not Dead 2, but there's plenty to laugh at. Meet the Blacks is trying to be funny, and none of the jokes hit. I think that makes it technically worse. However, I would probably watch Meet the Blacks more unless getting intoxicated counts, because I don't want to watch any more of God's Not Dead 2 unless my mind is being altered. And unless I can laugh out loud and riff it, like Mystery Science Theater style, because that would make it way better. Meet the Blacks, there's nothing, to, there's nothing, there's nothing, it's a, it's a nothing. It, it, it's like movie antimatter. There's no reason for it to exist, and it, and it saps away quality from everything around it. I don't know, I'm going off on a rant, I guess, but... Point is, if you're going to make a parody, make a parody, stick to it, try to be funny. Don't get high, watch The Purge, invite all your friends over, and make a movie. That doesn't count. Anyway, moving on. I'm done with this nonsense. We made a decision. Ready. Right now. Three. Go! Two. Wait. One. Last movie this time around is actually a movie from 2015 that just now made it out to Ohio. And it's a thriller based around the idea of drone warfare. In case you haven't been listening to anything in the news or paying attention to how we're fighting in the Middle East right now and in Africa, and since I believe Bush's second term, somewhere in that four-year period, we started using remote-controlled planes with missile payloads and cameras to spy on and attack places without sending in troops. And without, you know, it's the death from above sort of thing. And you hear a lot about that because it's a very controversial tactic. And we've gotten to the point now where it's very strategized, it's very coordinated. Uh, in this movie, we have a hardline British colonel I don't remember what branch she's in, but uh, played by Helen Mirren, who's been following a Brit, who's been following a British national who's turned, who's converted to Islam and become a terrorist, and very high level on the most wanted list. And she's been following this girl for six years and has been trying to track her down and kill her. And she's tracked this woman down to a part of Nairobi where it's controlled by militants and there's a lot of Somali migrants who've come to live there. And they actually mention Al-Shabaab by name. They use footage of Al-Shabaab attacks on Nairobi and in, uh, at a... Uh, uh, I forget the name of the university. Uh, they attack, but they use... They mention the university attack and they mention Al-Shabaab by name. But they only mention 
fictional terrorists and fictional attacks and hypothetical attacks, future attacks, you know, attacks that might happen. But they never strictly address actual historical events. They're only in reference to give the movie a setting. It's based in Nairobi, but it's also mainly based in London and Las Vegas and a bit in Pearl Harbor, because this is how coordinated we're talking. Uh, Nairobi, you've got the Kenyan military with spies of their own, with tech coming from the Americans. Uh, the drone is U.S. Air Force, and it's piloted by Aaron Paul and uh, Phoebe Fox, I believe her name is. And this is Phoebe's first time on the mission, and this is uh, Aaron Paul's first time with addressing militants and addressing high-level targets. Anyway, point is, Helen Mirren tracks down this British turncoat to Nairobi where they find an American citizen and another British national who have also converted to Islam and become part of Al-Shabaab. And in coordination with the Kenyan Army, British Air Force, and British uh, Cobra, it was what they referred to it, you know, so British military and U.S. Air Force, they are wanting to make sure that these high-level targets are in place. And it's a very tense. It's very, very tense because it's a lot of legal talk and legalese and a lot of passing the buck because there are points where they feel like they can make the shot, but they don't want to make the wrong decision and cause civilian casualties. And so a big portion of this movie is arguing about whether or not to fire at known militants because a little girl who is living right next door is selling bread. Selling bread right on the street, and she's right within the blast radius. And like half of them don't want to make the shot. Like Aaron Paul specifically doesn't want to make the shot if he knows that little girl's going to die. And Helen Mirren and Alan Rickman in his last on-screen performance as a general, have to argue the point that if they don't let that little girl die, more people will die from these Al-Shabaab militants setting off suicide vests. And it's very tense, and it's all about what is the right decision? When is the right time to shoot, and is there a way around it, and should you wait? And it's very... Very crazy, and from what I can tell, most of it is based around how it happens. I believe either a book or uh, just a British author was researching it for a book, and it got turned into a movie. And it's crazy to think about, and they do address the fact that you're waging warfare behind a joystick instead of fighting it on the ground. And there's that problem, too, because a bunch of people don't want casualties, any casualties, they don't consider this an active war zone because they're politicians. Whereas trained military like Helen Mirren and like Alan Rickman know the cost of waging war and that they have high-level targets that will do more damage alive than one casualty dead. And it's, it's a very philosophical debate going on, but it's so intense and taut and... Yet, at points, it does overplay that sentiment. Like, this is from Gavin Hood, who started with Tsotsi, I believe it's called, uh, T-S-O-T-S-I. Uh, he's a South African director. Best-known Hollywood movies have been 
X-Men Origins Wolverine, and Ender's Game. So this is technically his best movie to date. I haven't seen Tsotsi. I can't judge that movie compared to Eye in the Sky. But Eye in the Sky is definitely his best movie. This really showcases his capability as a director. And yet at the same time, I'm not sure if it was the writing or his direction, it really overplays the sentiment of killing from afar. Like, you get that that's the point they're trying to make, is that we're killing from afar. And while it does address the fact that this is how war is waged and that doesn't make war any less terrible, it doesn't change the fact that these military commanding officers know the risks and are willing to take that for the greater good, as uh, the British saying goes. Uh, the greater good. <laughs> anyway, and so it addresses that mindset, that philosophy going in, but the movie itself takes a pretty firm stance on civilian casualties because of drone warfare is a, very, is a tragedy, especially compared to open warfare, where you have to make those decisions on the battlefield. Like with Lone Survivor, Mark Wahlberg had to make the active decision not to kill an Afghan child, and they were arguing back and forth on whether that's the right decision given that they're in enemy territory and this Afghan child could alert Taliban forces. But in Eye in the Sky, most of those decisions when it comes to drone attacks aren't made in the battlefield in the moment. Those are made from afar. And again, that's the point it's trying to make is it's trying to comment on the fact that we're waging war from our armchairs. And I think that's a quote from somebody, like some pundit or somebody was making the point about drone warfare being attacking from behind joysticks and from our armchairs while actual people die in the field. And yet at the same time, it's hard to argue with the fact that while it is very, very one-sided, if a lot of other people had that ability, it could be a lot worse. It could be way better. It's, but the fact that this uh, technology exists that if you have the right amount of money, nations with that money would use it. The Chinese, Russians, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Libya, our enemies would use that against American civilians and you know European civilians. And just because they would doesn't exactly make that okay for us to do. It's This is a very gray issue. And I feel like this movie takes a point too firm on the commie, pink-blooded, you know, we can all just be friends, we shouldn't do this awful, meanie thing side. And that's the sign I'm on. But at the same time, it's so nuanced. And when you look at it from the point of view of the military and of the intelligence community, there is this nuance that you need to take. And, you know, that's why there is this coordination I mean, it's one thing for the, the mil U.S. military to do it unilaterally, just U.S. straight to wherever the Pentagon wants and blow somebody up. It's another thing when it's collaborated with the U.K., with the Eurozone, with NATO, with the local military and local governments. I feel like that makes it better, but it doesn't make it the... It's so... You could go for hours debating whether or not drone strikes are a good thing or a bad thing. 
And this movie kind of does a good job portraying just what it does. Because, I mean, that's the thing. It shows that Aaron Paul and Phoebe Fox are going through this turmoil as they've got the trigger pointed where this little girl could die. And that's a thing. In actual drone warfare, the uh, U.S. Air Force pilots who are in charge suffer from PTSD the same way a lot of soldiers do. And I saw on IMDb under the trivia looking to see if how accurate the movie was that, according to Gavin Hood, when he was doing research for the movie, that about 30% of the U.S. Air Force pilots that go into the drone program come out with PTSD because of situations like in the movie where they have to kill civilians in order to take out these high-risk targets. And... It's like any other form of warfare. It does damage you psychologically because we're not used to this sort of thing. We're not used to this level of, you know, murder. Because that's all war is. It's murdering each other for one reason or another. And when you're that far away, it probably does a different level of damage to your psyche than it would when you're right in front of you. I mean, open warfare is one thing. Distant warfare probably does a whole other type of damage to you psychologically. But point is, this is the best movie that come out this weekend. And all the movies I had to see at different Regal franchises because the Cinemark I go to only showed the movies from last week. Superman, Deadpool they've got, uh, Miracles from Heaven, and... Uh, bunch of, you know, the stuff that's been coming out in the last couple of weeks. Mostly March and Deadpool, I think. And the new stuff was coming out only at the Regals. So that's where I had to go this week. And I really suggest that if this movie's playing near you, go see it. Because it's intense and it's very well done, even if it gets a little heavy-handed on the pinky commie side of the argument, it's still really good thriller and a really good look at how this type of warfare works. I mean, compared to things like uh, the 13-hours thing that Michael Bay did, Lone Survivor, and a lot of the other modern-day military dramas and thrillers and war movies, this is something that hasn't been tackled yet because it's easy to do open warfare. That's easy to do. That's not how we're fighting anymore. So much of our... We're not fighting armies. We're fighting militants. And so you've got drones. You've got intelligence wars. And it's that sort of fighting that's going to be the future of war. Because the nations are pretty, you know, evenly dealt, so to speak. Whereas right now, we're not really fighting each other with armies like we've always done. Now it's... You know, militant groups fighting against either their own nation's army or against all nations as this sort of terror group. And that's started to come out of the Cold War, I think. That's when you started to see militant groups really on the rise against countries rather than nations fighting each other like it used to be. Anyway, point is go see Eye in the Sky. It's really good. All right, uh, after the break, we'll get into our discussion, which uh, this week we'll make on movies ripped from today's headlines. They got paid for their sound bites. 
this guy who made his wife so mad one night that she cut off his wiener and when he finally came I'm going to admit ripped from today's headlines was not going to be the theme of this week's episode when this series started I was going to do it on sequels and making a good sequel because on top of God's Not Dead 2, this weekend was supposed to have the Ring sequel. Like the second Ring sequel entitled Rings uh, was supposed to come out, but that got pushed forward probably until October or August, you know, later in the year, if it ever comes out at all. So since this week we've got a terrible sequel to a terrible movie, a terrible parody of something, and a really good movie based on stuff that's going on in the news, I figured we'd do a whole rip from today's headline sort of thing. Because as much as it's good to tell other people's stories, like based on a true story sort of thing, sometimes it's good to loosely base something that's going on in the world. And this usually happens more in television. This is where you get stuff like Law & Order and all the different cop procedurals and legal procedurals where they take cases that are going on in the news and comment on them. Movies, that's harder to do because if you take something from the headlines, by the time you're done making a movie, that thing's already gone from the headlines, especially nowadays. So it has to be something very prevalent. And I had to look some stuff up, and most of it, most of the stuff that was ripped from the headlines was stuff that had to do with you know, big stories at the time, like uh, the Zodiac Killer in the 70s and uh, the Symbionese Liberation Front, or Liberation Army, was it? I don't know, it was before my time. That was the one that uh, kidnapped Patty Hearst and turned her into a militant. That was a big story for movies in the 70s. Uh, Dirty Harry covered it in one of the sequels. Uh, Dirty Harry also covered the Zodiac Killer. Because uh, the first villain that Dirty Harry fights in Dirty Harry is a serial killer based around the Zodiac Killer. And it's that sort of thing where it's big headline news going for like months at a time that go on to inspire movies. And you also get a lot of crime movies. Like there was a movie in 2006 7. Uh, featuring Emile Hirsch, I believe, and Justin Timberlake called Alpha Dog. And that was a movie where these hoodlum white trash kids uh, kidnap a rich kid. They start to befriend him as they're holding him hostage. And then things break down with the cops and the kid ends up dead. And then that got turned into a movie with Justin Timberlake and I believe Emile Hirsch. On that note, you also get stuff like Once again, in the 70s, all the president's men. The Watergate scandal of the 1972 election was so big, it inspired all these different, like all the president's men and any sort of legal political thriller around scandal and cover-ups has roots in that Watergate. Like that created ripples in pop culture and in the writing of the time. Okay, so not a lot. Most of them are actually based on Nixon, like the movie Nixon, uh, that comedy with uh, Kirsten Dunst called Dick, where it's like two girls do the Watergate scandal, I guess, and then the Frost-Nixon movie. I don't know why I thought there was more. There was uh, 
definitely all the president's men and then the stuff that has to deal with Richard Nixon. I guess it was more on the television side because I can definitely remember a lot of the writing of that time because the 70s, that between that and the, and the uh, Kennedy assassination, that just was this big shock to Americans that their government, which during the time of Eisenhower and FDR, which had been built, you know, has been built up to protect them and care about their interests, turns out to be a complete wash. Like Kennedy, this beloved president at the time, who was going through a lot. I mean, I've heard stories uh, with the coming of 11-22-63 that uh, if President Kennedy had survived and if he hadn't been assassinated, he might not be as well regarded as he was because he wasn't doing so well at the time with uh, the war in Vietnam and the civil rights marches going on and, you know, all this drama going on at home and the fact that he was pushing hard against communism you know, with the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis, that if he had continued as a president, people suspect that he would have continued down that route and he would have gone down as one of the least liked presidents. And the fact that he was assassinated is what enshrined him in people's hearts and minds. And when you've got that word, it just, you know, it's one of those things that shocked America. And then... Uh, eight years later, nine years later, because it's about the same time. No, it's eight and a half years later. Now I'm trying to do math at, what is it, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, anyway. Uh, eight and a half years later, uh, that from the Kennedy assassination, you get the Watergate scandal. So within that deck, you know, within the span of a decade, America is just, torn apart from all this garbage going. That's what started movements like with Easy Rider and all the president's men, these hard looks at society. That's what brought the rise of exploitation to fill the needs that Hollywood wasn't filling. And Hollywood took this hard look at itself and just really started to doubt its own capabilities. And it wasn't until Reagan was elected in the 80s that you saw that rise of patriotism and nationalism and American pride again. Because all throughout the 70s, between the scandals and Nick, and the Kennedy, both Kennedy assassinations, because Robert Kennedy died during the 1968 election season. No. Uh, I think it was 70. See, I'm, I'm not good at remembering history. Uh, but I remember not long after John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy died by assassination. Again, he wasn't even president yet. He was just campaigning. And good movie about that uh, day at the hotel in Los Angeles, uh, Bobby, it's called. That's made by Emilio Estevez. Not a great movie, but a nice look at uh, that day of the with the lives surrounding uh, Bobby Kennedy coming to this hotel. Recommend that. Really good. But yeah, with all that going on, it was ripe for uh, Hollywood to take notice. So you've got things like the Symbionese Liberation Army, which also inspired part of the movie Network. So all the coverage and the rise of television news and rating system and news as entertainment gave rise to Network, 
which is a fantastic and really foreboding movie given the direction it went. And uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army is part of that storyline, as well as an actual suicide on screen by a Florida TV anchor, like a local Florida news anchor killed herself because of ongoing depression that I believe that I don't know if it was treated or not, but her depression led her to commit suicide on the air. And part of network was inspired by that too. So, I mean, there's these things that you notice that you can make a story around without it really being based on anything, like any one event. I think that sort of way of writing brought the inspired by true events thing where you want to tell this story based on something you read in the newspaper, based on what's going on in the world, but it's not really based on that person's life. So you have to do the inspired thing because legal reasons, because they don't want that person coming to sue the movie studio to get money for what they believe is being based on their life. Whereas stuff like Network and Dirty Harry, things that are taking from true life events without being based on it specifically, that would have to be, say, inspired by in today's Hollywood to avoid that sort of, you know, legal area because lawyers ruin everything. If we've learned anything, lawyers ruin everything. So yeah, with like Network and all the President's Men and Dirty Harry and all these different movies commenting on things that are going on in the world, by the time you get the 80s and 90s, most of that is gone to TV. Like Lifetime is big on adapting stories that are based on actual events because once again, it's cheaper and easier and quicker to make things for TV. And I think... We've got Eye in the Sky, I'm trying to think of something that was made without the moniker of based on a true story or inspired by true events that takes place and uses something that is going on currently as the setting. Nothing's really coming to mind. I think it's something that has been relegated to TV for the most part because it is so much easier and quicker and cheaper to do. The best thing I can think of that's dealing with current events would be this foreign language movie called Four Lions. It's based between uh, Pakistan and London, and it deals with four uh, very, very, you know, satirical looks at, you know, they're, you know, they're clowns. They're very comical characters, but they're set as jihadists, uh, would-be jihadists, because they don't actually terrorize anybody. And it's a farce based around terrorism. And really, it's the only thing I've seen of that sort. And it's really something I've been meaning to see because when I first saw the trailer for it, I thought, this is going to be amazing because nobody's tackling terrorist-based comedy. Not comedy in the name of terrorism, but comedy poking fun at these terrorists. Like, you don't really see that for the most part. Like, you'll see references to it in South Park, things of like that, you know, People will make jokes about it in stand-up, I'm sure. But you never really see media poking fun at these guys. Despite the fact that back in the day, like if you watch old Bugs Bunny and old Disney cartoons, like the uh, Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse shorts, they would easily make fun of the Germans and the Japanese, especially the Japanese. I think because we were more at war with Japan, whereas most of Europe was at war with uh, the Nazis and Hitler. 
you know, our major war was the Japanese because they're the ones that finally pushed us by bombing Pearl Harbor. And so most of the war propaganda, if it wasn't about Hitler, it was all about the Japanese. And I feel like that's something it's hard to do nowadays because you have to be more nuanced than what they were doing because they were just doing Chinese caricatures for Japanese where it's big buck teeth and oh, hara and very, very, very not safe for modern audiences. Like you couldn't get away with that in the least because you need to be smarter than that. Like I feel like there's a nuance to poking fun at that sort of thing. I just watched season six of Archer and one of the episodes has him dealing with a Japanese general who was left on one of the islands until the present day. It's like he still thinks it's the war is still going on. And he's played by a Japanese actor, and they handle that sort of thing very well, very tastefully, and it's not all at the Japanese soldier's expense. Where I feel like a lot of the propaganda that was used during World War II was definitely at their expense because they're the enemy. And I feel like the closest we've come to that is South Park. South Park was the first uh, show to be like, hey, screw these guys. We're going to make fun of them. And they made Cartman, Bugs Bunny, and Osama Bin Laden into essentially Elmer Fudd. And I feel like nobody really tackles that because, number one, they don't want to be racist towards Muslim. And number two, they don't want to incur the wrath of these terrorists. And I feel like there's a way to poke fun because I feel like so much of... That fear can be leveled by making them appear less threatening through comedy. And I feel like that's something that we're not having. Whereas we could make fun of the Russians during the Cold War and we would, you know, the whole time our media was willing to make fun of our quote unquote enemies. Whereas this time around, we've reached a point where we don't want to step on any eggshells, don't want to offend anybody's feelings. But by doing that, we kind of give up this power we have to combat terrorism through comedy. I feel like you don't fight an ideology with weapons, you fight it with ideas. And you see that in France. France was big on that, and you see that in Europe. But I feel like where they go is indicative of the problem where they go so broad that it offends swaths of otherwise nonviolent Muslims and the ones that are violent are willing to fight for it. I feel like if you have, like with Four Lions, Muslim characters poking fun at this otherwise scary and dangerous group then there's a means to make that funny and make them less threatening and take away that power that they have. Like, their main recruiting tool is their video editing. And I feel like if you combat them, not with just like, hey guys, don't join the jihadists because they're lying to you. I feel like making what would be jihadi recruits and terrorist recruits, because it's not just Muslim, there's, I mean, these are kids from all walks of life. And most of them are going because they feel like their life sucks. And I feel like making their life suck less through comedy is a better tactic than telling them, hey, don't go join that group. They're evil. Because then they're like, well, since you told me not to join them, I'm going to go do that to screw you. I feel like there's a better method. And I feel like if you make them less 
appealing to audiences over here where that they're targeting, then you've got then you then people are less likely to join. And while they are terrible people and they commit horrible atrocities against the people there, I feel like a better way to help out here is to make them less appealing to join to people. You know, have their targets look at them as a joke rather than as a viable means to a better life. This got really deep. I didn't think I would go this deep for a discussion. And I don't know how stupid I came off during it because I don't know, because I'm mainly talking out of my ass for this discussion portion. I do some research. Like I did more research for the Superman discussion than I did for this one. But yeah, so somehow we got from ripped from today's headlines to making Muslim comedy. Okay, whatever. Yeah, but then that's what's in the headlines. That's what we hear about. We hear about the wars going on in the Middle East and in Eastern Africa waged by terrorists and against the West, quote unquote. Because, I mean, it's mainly Europe and then America's America's too far away. Like if we were in, like if one of those countries was Mexico, we'd have, you know, we wouldn't be so... Uh, willing, I feel like. Or maybe we'd be more willing. I don't know. We're screwed up like that. But but the point is, that's what's going on in the world. So, you know, rather than ignore it, I feel like it's better to tackle it, either by having discussions like with Eye in the Sky or take the Four Lions route and poke holes through their ideology and make them a joke. That's how you win the war on terror, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Uh... Because the only other rip from the day's headlines sort of thing are like crime stories, and those are more likely to get adapted to TV. I feel like this was a terrible idea for discussion, and that's why I ended up talking about how to win the war on terror with jihadi jokes. Anyway, forget this discussion ever happened, because I have Patreon! Great segue to the Patreon. Yes, I have a functioning Patreon page, and if you want to support this podcast, terrible discussions about jihadi jokes excluded then please support me at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie now last week i didn't have everything set but right now i do have everything that i want in place for right now right now the main goal is to make my first hundred dollars to start working on the make a better movie podcast that i mentioned last episode now the donation process is per month because I didn't want to make you donate per video or per podcast because as I want to do more work, I don't think you should have to pay more per episode. So it's by month. Here's how the reward system works. There are five tiers. The first tier is at $1 or more per month. With $1 or more, you get thanked at the end of every episode. So you can just donate a dollar and you get thanked at every episode. The second tier is unlocked at $5 or more a month, and with that you get not only thanked at the end of every episode, but you also get early access to whenever a new episode is released. The third tier is unlocked at $15 or more an episode. This one was harder because I wasn't sure what to put here. It used to be, through the Solitary Nerd, you got to name Pokemon in my Pokemon playthrough. This time around, at $15 or more a month, you get 
named at the end of every episode, early access, plus access to my Google Docs, which have the list of stuff I want to talk about and make a better movie, the list of games I want to play on a future Let's Play, and I'll also move my Popcorn Junkie notes to Google Docs so you can see what I'm looking to talk about uh, in future episodes and maybe even add to the discussion. Like, add, if you know something about what I want to discuss, you know, hey, make this point and then put your little initials to show that you added that discussion point and I'll mention you during the discussion portion. The fourth tier is unlocked at $25 or more a month. And with that, you get thanks at the end of every episode, early access, access to the Google Docs, plus when the goal is reached and I'm able to do reviews, either audio or video, you get to pick at $25 or more a month a movie for me to review once I've reached that goal. So right now I want to do Make a Better Movie Podcast. That's at $100. Once I've made my first $250, I will start taking requests for patrons donating $25 or more a month. So if you wanted me to review a specific movie, something that hasn't come out in theater, something you would think I would have a lot of fun reviewing, or if you want to subject me to something, that something that you know personally I would take great pain in sitting through, I will review that for you if you donate $25 or more a month. And that's once I've reached the $250 goal on Patreon. The highest tier right now is at $50 or more a month. And with that, you get thanked in the end of every episode, early access to all episodes, access to the Google Docs, the ability to take requests, plus the ability to guest star in a review for your own request. So you not only get to request a movie to review, you get to guest star in that, either through Skype or through video recorded segments if it gets to the point where I'm making video again. That's another future goal, that I want to start making video segments again. Because I really like that, but I felt like it wasn't working for me since I was very time-consuming and I wasn't getting work done in a timely manner and it wasn't making me any money. So if I can get enough money to start doing video reviews again, you can record a video review with me if you donate $50 or more per month. So those are the five tiers. That's at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie if you want to support this podcast and help it grow. The other way to help this podcast financially is if you go to popcornjunkie.podomatic.com, you will find a PayPal link on the sidebar just above the Apple subscription button. And that way, you can donate to my podcast through PayPal. And you can either do a recurring donation or you can do a one-time donation. And that also helps the podcast financially if you don't want to do something recurring like through Patreon. Speaking of iTunes, I'm also verified on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes and search Popcorn Junkie, P-O-P-C-O-R-N space J-U-N-K-I-E, you will find the Popcorn Junkie podcast. It's the picture from Nafio that he drew for me sitting in the theater eating popcorn and with a dazed look in my eyes and the big Hollywood sign letters reading Popcorn Junkie. Find me on iTunes and... If you subscribe to me on iTunes and you want to help the podcast grow without donating money, leave a five-star review 
And if you leave a five-star review, I will read it on a future episode. So it can be a congratulations. It can be whatever you want me to say on a future episode. Just leave a five-star review on iTunes. Look for Popcorn Junkie on iTunes. P-O-P-C-O-R-N-J-U-N-K-I-E. And if you want to keep up with me through social media, just go to Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie and look for at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter. And you can find out when new episodes are coming out. And you can also hear my thoughts on future movie reviews. I will always post to those social media links what my initial thoughts are for future reviews. I do that leaving every single movie I come out of the theater. And I'll also do it for stuff you request through Patreon. So if you want to follow me on social media, Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie or on Twitter.com at Corn Junkie Pod. So I think that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and hopefully next episode we'll have a distinct lack of jihadi dukes. The theme for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn on SoundCloud.com, and the artist is named The M. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie was done by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Go to nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. research before I started recording and I don't want to stop recording because that would take too much time and I'm gonna keep singing this song based around the Watergate scandal do 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 do